Praise the Lord, everyone. It is good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. If you have your Bibles, if you will go with me to the book of John, fourth chapter. We'll start reading in John John chapter 4 and verse 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sachar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were going away in the city to buy meat. Then saith he, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Let's jump down to verse 19. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye know not what ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. For a few moments tonight, I want to talk to you about true worship. True worship. But the hour cometh, and now is, when... True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Lord bless you. You may be seated. This passage of Scripture is one of the most intriguing passages of Scripture that I have studied over the last several years. Four or five years ago, the Lord took me on a journey through the book of John, and I haven't been able to get away from it. Every time I think I have discovered everything within what's being said, I accidentally come upon something I had not even paid attention to before. So tonight, I want to try to share with you what Jesus said to this lady and how it actually affects all of our lives. The third chapter of John is probably the most quoted scripture among Christians that exist. Most everybody can quote it. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life. When John is writing 
this, this letter about the life of Christ. He is consumed with an understanding of what love is really all about. See, ten years before he starts to write this book, he's on an island. He has been banished to that island by a Caesar because he would not worship Caesar. They had tried to kill him by putting him in a pot of boiling oil, but the fire and the oil couldn't kill him. So they banished this old man to a rock quarry called Patmos. It's the quarry where they mine the marble and granite that's used in all of the structures that are being built in the city of Rome and other cities. So as an old man, he's he's probably 90 to 95 years of age when he pins his gospel. He's probably 90 to 80 to 85 years of age when he's banished to the Isle of Patmos. And here's, here's this old man that is forced into harsh labor and un- conditions that, that would cause us to cringe, that someone would be subjected to this kind of punishment at his age. A young person, you could see that. But here's, here's an old person. He's not young. An old man banished to this rock quarry and he spends his day helping, uh, separate the stone, drilling, chiseling, and then blasting as they, they uh, are, as they tear the stones away so they can get it in larger sections and then the process of, uh, of forming it into columns or structure or pieces they can use in structures. That's his daily job. But somehow, even in this God-forsaken place, on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day, he found a time to pray. And on the Lord's day, he says, I was in the Spirit. And all of a sudden, revelation starts coming. and He starts seeing things that are about the end of time. And there's... One that speaks, there's one in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. And and as he speaks to John, John is required to write what is being spoken to him. The first message that he hears about the candlestick is in regards to the church he has pastored for at least 10 years, maybe 20 years. And so... As he's hearing what God has to say, God says to John, I have somewhat against your church because your church, Ephesus, has caused me to become angry. There are six others I have problems with, but you, your anger has caused me such an issue that I will remove your candlestick if you do not repent and and renew your first works. And John is required to write the words to his own church. And he would pin them as God says them. 
I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The word left doesn't mean that you lost it or misplaced it. It doesn't mean that you went on a journey without it. The word left is actually a compound word. It has preposition, apo, a verb, luo. And it literally is the term for divorce in the Greek language. So God says to John, you have kept the doctrine. You know how to try spirits. You kept everything in order that should be in order. But I've got something against you. You you knew how to make sure you're still following the, the teaching that was left. But it takes more than following his word. It takes more than just understanding the doctrine. It It requires that we take on the nature as well. Because the nature is God is love. And love is the need of that hour, and it's the need of this hour. Now, they didn't lose their love towards God. They didn't lose their love of of the Word of God and, and being in church. They didn't lose that. What they lost was their love for people. They, they got to the point they were becoming irritated with people. And, and because of what people were doing and, and how people were interacting, they lost the desire or the need to be connected to other humans. And so they weren't tolerating humans. They, they would tolerate God and His Word, but people, they were just irritating too much. And so they divorced themselves from the responsibility of reaching their world. When Jesus was ascending in the book of Acts, the first chapter, and He's on the Mount of Olives, and He's being about to be taken up out of their midst, and He's talking to them, and He tells them that the gospel needs to be preached first in Jerusalem, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. It's going to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the world. The gospel needs to be preached. Samaria, where this lady is at this well, is quite an interesting study in history. There are people who want to say that the Samaritans were half-breeds. But when you really start checking it carefully and, and you look at what the Jewish thought of who the Samaritans were, they, they were the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. And they were left in the land and while being in the land, they, there had been the rift between the two kingdoms, and Jerusalem was no longer the center for the northern tribes. And they had their 
their own places of, of worship. And Samaria tried to keep the original law intact. And according to history, the Samaritans were actually living the law closer to the law than the Jews were. The Samaritans hadn't made the law so burdensome that you really didn't even want to come to church or be part of church or even come in the house of God. They hadn't added the, the thousands of rules and regulations that, that their counterparts had in Jerusalem. They hadn't done that. They were simply following the Mosaic law in its simplicity as close as they could. And, and they had built their own temple and their temple is actually at the top of a mountain called Gerizim. Well, Gerizim is actually on the left-hand side of where Jesus is sitting that day and talking to this lady. On the right-hand side of where Jesus is at that day is Ebal. And Jesus is sitting at Jacob's well. Jacob's well is quite an interesting study itself. It's really not a well. It's just a hole in the ground. When Jacob bought the piece of property from the Philistines or the Canaanites and wanted to claim his inheritance, he had, he had been given a birthright. He had been given a blessing. And, but yet he had nothing to prove that he had any of the things God had promised his father Isaac and his grandfather Jacob. He had been in another country for 21 years, now he comes back and he's going to stake out his territory. So to prove that he was not leaving, he, he bought a piece of property and he started digging a well. He must have thought he would hit water at some point, but he didn't. The well is over 150 to 200 feet deep. It's over 10 foot in diameter. And the only water that comes into that well is when it rains in the spring and fall and the water seeps down through the rocks or runs down through the valley and winds up at this well. But it's Jacob staking out his territory, claiming this is what belongs to me. John had already declared in chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave. So he goes to a well to encounter this woman, and I shared with you what he he talked to her about the gift of God, but he went on to reveal more to her as he was talking to this lady at this well. He, he as he begins this conversation, he repeatedly over and over calls her woman. That's a term of endearment. It's not a term to bring this disgrace or or mockery. It, it's a term. That it's the highest word of honor that you could place on a female in the Greek world of that day. And so repeatedly he refers to her as an honored lady. But we know from the revelation that she really wasn't an honored lady. According to her city, she wasn't valuable enough to even be allowed into town to get water from a well in Sychar that actually was a artesian well that had water that constantly flowed in it. 
She couldn't go to town to get water. She was forced to bring her little water pouch, her skin, her goat skin, that she had let down in a rope and filled with water and take it home. The water that she would get from this well is not even fit to drink because it's contaminated. It could have disease in it. It's not fresh water. So for her family to drink it, there would have to be a boiling process or they would have to double the amount of wine they mixed with water to kill the protozoa and bacteria in the water so that they could drink it and not become diseased. So here's this lady that comes out from that city. She apparently lives in town because that's where she comes from. And as she's coming to this well, Jesus starts this conversation. And it's quite apparent that as Jacob made a statement to his world, I have claimed, come to claim what belongs to me, Jesus shows up at that well to say, I have come to claim what belongs to me. And that's all the broken, the wounded, the injured of life people whose lives have, have been discarded by others, been thrown away on a regular basis. See, the woman really wasn't immoral. She had five husbands. She's now living with a man who's not her husband. But that's not by choice. In her world, a woman had no rights. She could not divorce a husband, no matter what he did to her, how he treated her. She wasn't allowed to divorce. He could get rid of her for any reason he chose. She didn't smile. She burnt the toast. She just He just got tired of her. So for any reason he came up with, all he had to do was write a bill of divorcement, give her her dowry, send her back to dad, and dad would have to find some other man to take her. Five times that has happened in her life. She's been thrown away by five different men as discard. She's not worth keeping. She, she's not good enough to hang around my house. I, I, I have nothing to do with her. I don't want her. She's, she's a nobody. And she's thrown away again repeatedly over and over and over and over. And by the time the fifth one comes around, the odds are her father is no longer alive. So now there's nobody to make the connection that would allow her to be married. And so the one she's now with is not her husband. And the moment she recognizes who Jesus is, because he says to her, true, you say you have no husband. You've had five before. He's not condemning her. He's not ridiculing her. He's not trying to make her feel worthless or throw her away. He's just giving her a revelation. I, I understand the pain and suffering you've gone through in life. I am quite aware of how bad your life has really, really been. And she said, I perceive your prophet. If you are a prophet, I want to know where we're supposed to worship because we're still arguing about what's the correct place. There was a temple on top of that mountain. Jesus could see it from the well. There is a temple there, just like the one in Jerusalem. It's here on top of this mountain. And 
And, and there was such contention between the Samaritans and the Jews that, that because of, of the fact they didn't go to the promised land or to, to Babylon when the others were taken captive, they were allowed to remain. And the Assyrians thought they would pollute them. So the Assyrian king brought thousands of families from Assyria and brought them to that area and forced them to live hoping that they would cause those people to be destroyed. But instead of being destroyed by all these people who came in, they started converting them. And the longer they lived, the more they taught them the law and Moses' law and what the law said. And and the more they start living the law, the more they're there. They start here and they are proselyted. They become Jews. They go through the process of becoming a proselyte. They have to be baptized in water, and they have to start obeying and following the Jewish law. So in, 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 a, the king of Assyria thought he'd wipe them out, but instead they conquered everybody sent there. Well, apparently that caused some issues among the Jews. And in one, some... 180 B.C., the Samaritans gave Syria instructions or or information about how to conquer Israel. And when they did, then the high priest took the army of Israel and they marched to Gerizim and destroyed and burnt that temple to the ground. When Herod became king, He wanted to appease the Jews, so he convinced them to allow him to take their temple down and rebuild it much bigger, even bigger than Solomon's temple. It didn't have the beauty or the splendor, but it was much bigger in size than Solomon's temple. And they allowed him to do it. But he also rebuilt the temple for the Samaritans. And so you have this... This battle about worship that do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship here? Actually, Gerizim is Shiloh. It's where the tabernacle was set up originally. It, it The tabernacle remained there from the time they crossed the Jordan River and, and, and settled the nation. They put the tabernacle on top of Shiloh or Gerizim, Shiloh, same place. And then uh, as the, the, the land began to develop and the nation grew and then problems showed up and Eli's sons got involved and they took the ark into battle and the ark gets captured by the Babylonians and, and the, uh, the, uh, by the, the Philistines and the Philistines marched to Shiloh and they burn it to the ground. So at that point, there's no tabernacle for the Israelite and there's not one anywhere, but they go to that original mountain. It's also the Mount of Blessing. Here's it. When they came to Israel and they divided the nation into six tribes on one side and six on the other, they 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 spoke the blessings that my brother preached about here recently. It was here. Jesus goes to this well. And he starts speaking to them. And and I would say to you today that there are blessings according to where Jesus is at 
And the message he gave this woman, which Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, it came from this encounter at this well, from that message and this place, and the fact that this is the the, the mountain where the wall of law was and the the altar was at at Ebal, and then across was the, the tabernacle or the temple they worshipped at. At this place was a place of cursing and a place of blessing. And the Pentecostal experience can either be a curse to you or a blessing to you. You don't just become part of this and walk away and, and, and things go back to normal. That's not going to happen. If you're ever born again into the kingdom or family of God and you become a child of God because you go down in water in his name and you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you're buried with him in water, you take on that name, you take on the family name and you become a child of God. And and then you come up out of that water having repented your sin. He fills you with his spirit and you start speaking in his name. And you're born of water and spirit, John chapter 3, and the new birth takes place. When that takes place, I've now been totally separated from the old family I used to be part of. I have no connection to it. He delivered me from the power of darkness and translated me into the kingdom of his dear son. He took me out of the control of Satan. And he brings me to his house, to his family. And at his house and his family, my life changes. Now, when you go through water in his name and all your sin that you had committed up to that time remain in the water, and there's a circumcision of the heart. See, baptism is a replacement of the Old Testament rite of circumcision physically. In the New Testament, it's a circumcision of the heart. He cuts off all the sin surrounding your heart. And when you come up out of that water, all that sin's buried in the water. Now, here's the problem. You don't get a halo when you get out of that water. Now, when you're part of this old family, you sin by nature. And you can literally say, the devil made me do it, and be totally right. Because you were part of his family, his house, and he had control of your life. But the day you become born of water and spirit, and you leave an old life and become part of a new life, now... You're separated by water from an old lifestyle and all of your sin that had been committed up to that time is remains in the water. But you don't get a halo. We, we, we often indicate you do, but you don't get a halo. Now the difference is on this side of the water at this new house, you don't sin By nature, you sin by choice. If something happens in your life on this side of the water, you can't blame nobody for it. You can't say, well, I just didn't know. I I couldn't help myself. The fact is, if you you mess up, you got to take ownership. You got to say, okay, I I, I caused this to happen. This is my problem. And, And if you repent, 
you get to take blood and erase that sin and it winds up covered by the same blood that, that covered you as a result of water. So you continually get to remove your mistakes. Now, you shouldn't live a life of mistakes. You should learn from them and stop behavior that's causing them. But you don't get the Holy Ghost and God expects you to be perfect. I remember as a kid hearing preachers make a statement, there's no such thing as a sinning Christian. That, that just terrified me. My mind's very black and white. And they'd always add an addendum to it. The addendum was there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. Everybody makes mistakes. So I'm convinced a mistake and a sin are different because that's not true. The Greek word homartia means you put a target on the wall, walk away from it, get your bow and arrow out, pull the arrow back, release it at the target, and miss. You had good intentions. You just didn't hit. You got distracted. You didn't hit what you were aiming at. It means to miss the mark. Jesus is saying to this lady, the day cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. That's a little S. That's not Holy Ghost. You you don't worship in the Holy Ghost. You worship in your human spirit. It's referring to you as a human being. It's not the Holy Ghost. True worship is going to happen when your human spirit gets involved. Now, I've searched the Bible. I can only find two references to a human spirit in the Bible that gives me a definition. One is found in Proverbs, and it says, The spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord, searching the inward parts of the belly. Paul says in Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2, Nobody knows the man but the spirit of the man. Those two scriptures let me know that my spirit is my conscience. So there's going to come a day when you're separated from an old life and you get a new conscience that, that's clean, that's pure, that has the ability for God to touch and God to speak to. And when you get that new conscience, it is that conscience that God's going to preach to. You want to hear from God? Then listen to what your conscience says. Your conscience is the pulpit God preaches from. It's how God directs our life. So Jesus says to her, the day cometh now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father with their conscience and with truth. What is truth? It's the opposite of a lie. It's taking ownership. It's admitting. It's me. I got a problem. I'm the one with an issue. It's, it's me understanding who I am and taking ownership of my failures, my faults, my, my shortcoming and not trying to, to just push it aside and say, it's not a big deal. I take ownership and admit, okay, I got a problem. It's me. Jesus, it's me. I, I'm, I'm the one here causing this problem. When I take, that's worship can't be true until you get a conscience involved and accountability involved 
or ownership involved, that I'm taking ownership of my life. But what really caught my attention and caused me to start looking at this passage of Scripture carefully was the word he uses for true worship. Now, true worshipers and truth are not the same word. They're two different words. The word that he uses here is aletheneos. And let me just read you the definition. That which not has not only the name and the resemblance. You got the name and you look like him. But you don't just have the name and the resemblance, but you have the real nature corresponding to the name. So it's not good enough to just say, I love you, Jesus. If my worship doesn't start taking on his nature, it's not true. See, his nature is love. God is love. God so loved the world. And that's why the only church he got angry enough to remove was Ephesus. Why? Because you divorced yourself from love. You didn't think people worthy enough to spend time with or give your time to. And so you just, just start discarding people as if they're not valuable. But I'm not willing that any should perish. You don't get to choose who gets to heaven. And for some of you people, heaven's going to be hard for you to get to because there are going to be people in heaven that have been forgiven things you don't think God would forgive them for. See, I don't get to say, okay, God, you you, you can't choose that one. I, I don't get to say, God, that this this is this is not fair. And I had to learn this lesson the hard way. My dad always told me that that when you run into that brick wall enough times and you bloody your nose, at, at some point you'll quit running into the wall. And you'll figure out how to either go around it or, or just not run at the wall. And I, I have to say, Dad was right. You know, there, there's some things that I ought to learn as a result of going through the same struggle over and over and over and over and over again. I started looking at the nature of Jesus. And as I looked at the nature of Jesus, what, what characteristics do you use to define who Jesus was and how Jesus responded to people? What he, what events took place that you look at and, and you say, okay, that tells you a little bit about who he was. See, Jesus, first of all, was incredibly compassionate. When he looked around at a crowd of 5,000 people and saw that they had been sitting there all day in, in the heat, the Jordan Valley is over 1,200 feet below sea level. So if it's 100 degrees up 
in the, the, the mountains area, you get to that Jordan Valley, it's 117, 121, 122, 123. It's one of the hottest places you'll ever go to in your life. I was there in August. I have, I can tell you the heat is incredible and there's no moisture. So you start losing body fluid. You, the sweat, the, the liquids of your body start pouring out as a result. And if you don't keep hydrated, you're going to have problems shortly. And they've been sitting here for hours listening to him. And he has compassion. And, and, and he says, we got to give them something to eat. They're, they're, they need to be able to get home. We don't have to worry about water because Galilee um, is here. Someone just has to go fill up the, the jug and we can pass it around. There's plenty of water. We're not going to drain a lake that's 600 and something feet deep. You're just, that's not going to happen. But the food part. So they find a little boy with the loaves and fishes and it's blessed and miracle takes place in the disciples' hands and they don't even realize that, that a miracle is happening. But every time they broke the bread, it kept increasing just like when Jesus gave it to them. Took up 12 basketfuls. Because he had compassion. He was a servant. Paul says that he poured himself out. He emptied himself. He, he thought of himself of no reputation. He, he emptied himself out. He poured himself out for others. In America today, to talk about servanthood is almost a disgraceful thing today. We, we do not want anybody talking to us about serving people and servanthood. It's a, a word that we hate, that we don't want any part of because we, we think there's a, a better way to do it than, than being a servant. But Jesus was a servant. He walked into a room where his disciples were fighting and he took his, his outer garment off and wrapped a towel around his waist and he took a basin of water that they should have been washing each other's feet as they came in and knelt in front of each one of those twelve and washed their feet as a servant because he was a servant. He was loving. He had compassion on, on, on people who weren't kind, who were evil. He was forgiving. His prayer on the cross, his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They didn't ask for forgiveness. See, your world's made you believe that if somebody don't ask for it, you don't have to give it. Matter of fact, I understand it's being taught in Bible college. If forgiveness is not asked for, you're not obligated to give it. But that don't work for Jesus on the cross. And if I'm going to have true worship and act like him, I better start mimicking him and everything I can find in his life that he did as I relate to people with kindness, with gentleness, with long-suffering, with, with temperance, with patience. I, as, as I take on his nature, if I really, truly worship him correctly and I get close enough to him, I will start thinking and acting just like him. My nature will become his nature. I'll start reaching for people that, that maybe don't even want to be reached for. But he had compassion. He, he had, he, he was easily, Paul said, writing 
to the Hebrews. He was easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities and was all points tempted as we are yet without sin. There's not a struggle I can have in my life that I can say or I could tell him, you don't understand what it's like to be a human. He's going to say, no, you you don't understand. I, I was tempted in all points. You haven't been tempted in all, all points like as we are yet without sin. Because why? Because he loved people. He was committed. He was prayerful. He had a garden. He went to on a regular basis to conquer himself because even the God-man understood that if you don't conquer human flesh, it will conquer you. Even the God-man had a garden he'd go to and pray until his sweat become as great drops of blood because he knew if he didn't conquer his flesh, that his flesh would not allow him to fulfill the will of God. So, Father, let this cup pass from me. And again, Father, let this cup pass. And finally, he says, not my will, but thine be. And he drank of that cup. It took the God-man three times to control a human spirit. You're not a God-man. You're going to fight all your life with your human spirit. You're going to blame it on the devil, and you're going to blame it on temptation from the devil, and you're going to blame it on everybody else. But the fact is, it's not a devil. It's not outside sources. It's this stinking, rotten flesh we live in that doesn't want to behave. I gotta have a place where I pray, where I conquer this flesh. He was gentle, patient, self-control, humble. And you start looking for his characteristics. Yeah, it's not just important church that we baptize in Jesus' name and we look like what we think holiness is. It's not just important we have those two without the nature he said, I'll remove your candlestick. Without the nature, you don't put on his nature. And, and, and we don't start responding like him. That he will get real irritated with it. He'll put up with a whole lot of junk. He'll put up with, with your mistakes and your failures and you're doing the same dumb thing repeatedly over and over and over and over again. He'll put up with that. But when it comes to not loving people, and not connecting to people, he won't put up with it. See, Pentecost has a blessing. You follow and you do what he said. Who's, here's my shall they know you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. In another place, he said, if you're going to be my disciple, then you're going to have to obey my words. And you know what, folks? The Sermon on the Mount is the most irritating thing I've ever read in my life. It's irritating. I don't like it. But if I'm going to say I've got his nature, then I, I got to be willing to suffer what he said I need to suffer because if my brother smites me on the right cheek, I do not want to turn the other one. Now, he's not saying stranger or neighbor. He, In my case, it's Mark or Charles <laughs> or Margaret. <laughs> if thy brother 
sneak something. You can't hit somebody on the right cheek without hitting them from behind. If you're going to slap somebody, if you're right-handed, their right cheek is not presented. Their left cheek is. So you're going to hit them from the face. You're going to hit their left one. You're going to get the right one. You have to sneak up behind them, hit them when they're not looking. And Jesus said, if your brother sneaks up behind you and smites you on the right cheek, deck him. <laughs> See how far in the next week you can knock him. <laughs> so what he said? What he say? Say, I don't, your mate, your mate, nature made this one say, oh, that's easy. I like that one. My nature's got a problem with that. My nature's got a problem with, with they ask me to go a mile go too. If they ask for my coat, give them my coat. My nature's got a problem with that. My, my, my nature's got a problem with not pointing out flaws in everybody else. That's got a beam in your eye. See, the Sermon on the Mount's the most irritating thing Jesus preached. And according to Matthew's writing, he preached it several times because he said he sat down and taught them and the verb is in the imperfect tense, which was repeated action in time past. He taught that sermon every place he went. And the disciples still didn't get it. It took an old man at the end of his life realizing you know what? We, 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 we missed a few things. I gotta share some information with the church. If I don't share it with the church, they're not gonna understand the new birth process that, that you gotta be born of water and spirit. So I, I've gotta get into writing what, what I, I saw and witnessed and, and understood that Jesus had to go to Samaria because that lady represents humanity. And Jesus said, I've come to claim what's mine. The world's broke you, threw you away, said you're worthless. You're, you're never going to be successful, but I've come to give you the best life you could possibly have. And all I'm asking and return for the life I can give you is that you start, first of all, looking like me. You got to take my name and then you need to act like me. I don't know that I've ever had anybody say to me, but Hughes, you act like Jesus. I haven't, that hadn't happened at this point in my life. Now I had a lady pray one night and, and her prayer still haunts me. And it went kind of like this. Lord Jesus, would you let Reverend Hughes step far enough into your presence that we don't see him, we see you? But I haven't, I haven't found that place yet. I'm struggling to get there. But every time I think I'm, I'm becoming a little bit more liking, then something happens and, and this flesh rises up and, and I just gotta start fighting this battle all over again. Am I the only one having this problem? See, it's, it's not important you got the name and you look, you got the look. True worship has to have the nature to go with it. I'm looking for people who are willing to commit to me that they'll spend as much time with me as they can so they'll start looking more and more like me. That's all he's asking. And you know, that's not a hard thing to do. 
That's an enjoyable thing to do. If you ever get in the presence of God, it's a hard time getting you out because there's no place like the presence of God. It's, it's the safest place you're ever going to go. You're not going to be beat up. He's, he's not going to tell the world about what you've done when you confess. He's not going to make a public spectacle out of you. He's not going to say, if you listen to me, this wouldn't have happened, or I told you so, or our church, this, this one is really sorry. He, he can't do anything right. He's just, he's just my, he's, he's the clown of this family. He don't ever say that. When I walk away from his presence, I feel like a brand new person. No, no matter what my failure's been and what I had to repent of, when I walk away, I walk away like the load, just like I get to get baptized all over again. When I tell him I'm sorry and he takes it off my life and I walk away brand new over and over and over and over and over again. But I can't quit loving people. And in our world today, it's really easy not to like people. I had several episodes today. I'm working on the old man, okay? Because when you cut me off on the freeway, you know, I just, are you just cut me off because you need to go somewhere? Or, or so It's easy to not like people. And the more self-centered our world gets, the harder it's going to be like them. So we're going to have to really work at saying, okay, Jesus, step in the pulpit of my heart and preach. Preach. I give you permission to preach. And you start to say something, and the Holy Ghost says, "Uh uh-uh, don't. So you close your mouth and walk away. You just learn to come. How's that happen? I said, okay, Jesus, I, I, I spent a lot of time with your name and appearance, but I never knew I need to look like you or act like you. So i got to get close enough to you, Jesus, I'm starting to act like you. I become as kind and gentle. All the fruit of the Spirit is actually the nature of God. That's what Jesus is, and that's what I need to look like. He had faith. And people, I got to have faith in people. He loved people. There was joy. I, I people are not gonna make me happy. I, I can make people happy. Joy's inside of me, not outside of me. Joy comes from the inside, not outside. When I get close enough to Him, I'll look like Him. And then when I start acting like Him, ooh. See the disciples. Several times it stated they perceived they had been with Jesus. Jesus, your word can be so convicting, but your word is true. It is forever settled in heaven. Thank you for your word that you have allowed us to have and you have protected through time. Could have easily been lost, but you made sure that it remained. And your word is forever settled. Not one dot or cross mark will ever 
be taken from your word. It's forever settled. Thank you for your word. Jesus, you've been so good to me. I can't count the blessings that you've allowed me to enjoy. The blessings just this day you've allowed me to enjoy. I can't thank you enough. But yet I often let the world around me take my joy because of the irritation that happens as a result of the world I live in. So Jesus, I... I'm in incredible need tonight of being more like you. I need your nature. I need your presence. It's not anybody in this, else in this room, Jesus, that has issues. It's just it's me. I stand in need of you. I've preached your word for 52 years. And I don't guess I got close enough to you that I've acted like you as often as I need to. Would you help me to become the man I need to be for my world? Would you help me to take ownership of my life? Not blame circumstances. Not blame people. Not blame any other reason but I take ownership, and I take ownership of my life, and I say, it's, it, this is me, Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need your covering. Thank you that repentance is not a point action in time, but it's a journey I live every day of my life. Thank you that your word declares that repentance is not some point that happened at a day and time in my life, but it's the day I started a journey of repenting on a regular basis. So, Jesus, thank you for the power of your word to change hearts and lives. Would you, would you bless your people today? Would, 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 could we feel your presence in such a way tonight that, that we just relax and allow your spirit to begin to speak and talk to us and, Maybe bring some things to our hearts and minds that, that we need to work on to help us to be a better person than we are. I can always become better, Jesus. I need you in my life. Help me, Jesus, to become the man I should be. My grandchildren need to see a man who's willing to take ownership of his life and admit he's a failure when he is a failure. My grandchildren need to see me love people, to be kind to people, to be gentle and long-suffering, to be patient, but they also need to see me have faith and have faith in them and other people as well. Jesus, I want your spirit, the fruit of your nature, I need it in my life. I need joy. I need peace. I need gentleness, and I want it to be part of my life. But would you touch a heart right now in the name of Jesus? Would you respond? You don't have to stand. There's such an incredible, gentle presence of the Lord in this place here right now. If you just respond to what you're feeling today, the Lord start you on a journey that will change your life. 
in so many incredible ways. All you got to do is not be afraid. Give him an invitation. Give him permission. He's not going to tear the door off your heart to get in. But if you give him an invitation, say, Jesus, come into my heart. I give you permission. Step in the pulpit of my heart and preach. I can promise you he will speak to you. He'll talk to you. He'll take you places you you never dreamed you could go. And he'll help you to become the person that you truly need to be. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you today. What an incredible presence of the Lord. Would you worship him for a moment? He's here. What an incredible presence of the Lord's in this place. When we desire to get close to him and to act like him and, and to become like him, he's always going to be present. He's going to be, he said, he, the day come now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father, the Spirit, and truth, and the Father seeketh such. He's seeking. He's looking for what's happening right here. He, when we start responding and crying out the way we are, you have heaven's attention. God is present immediately when we start calling on his name and we start allowing him to speak in our lives. He's here and, and he will take you to places you've never been to before. If you'll just respond to what you feel right now. Jesus, we worship you today. We worship you today. We worship you today.